have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to uh, Proverbs, Proverbs 22, we'll look at verse 6 today. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we look at your inspired and errant word, we pray that you would take it and not only interact with our minds, but with our hearts. As James tells us, we don't want to be doers of the word only, or hearers of the word only. We want to be doers as well. And so, Father, impact us through your word. And Father, as we talk about parenting, grandparenting, and impacting children and youth that may not even be our own, We thank you for the models of so many here, and we ask, Father, that all of us would grow in this area, that we might impact the next generations for your glory and our betterment. We ask this in the name of Christ, amen. Well, today I have the joy of uh, talking a little bit about parenting, grandparenting, and impacting the next generation. And I want to begin by sharing 10 thoughts plus a bonus. That's a fancy way of saying I ended up with 11. 11 thoughts on parenting and grandparenting, just kind of as an introduction. And so they're all done by pictures. So if you put the first one up, We can't pass on that which we don't have. If we want to impact the next generation with the gospel, if we want to impact the next generation with the truth of God's word, we need to be in the word, we need to be in prayer, and we need to model what it means to live a Christ-like life. Give me the next one. Ah, yes. It takes a village to raise a child. It does. It's not enough just to have a mom and a dad. You need some grandparents. You need some surrogate parents. It takes a village. One of the best things we can do for our kids is to have other God-fearing adults in their lives. Grace. We need grace in our homes. We are saved by grace. Grace is what we don't deserve. And so we need homes that are filled with grace, not just law, or even predominantly law. Fourth, we need to model how to handle the difficult situations in our life. If we're always yelling and we're always swearing and we're throwing things, it is almost a guarantee that the next generation will model that. So we need to be thinking 
in terms of what do we want the next generation to look like, and that's got to be true in our lives as well. Ah, yes, delayed gratification. This is not something our world is good at. It's not something our country is good at. We have a buy now, pay later mentality. But we can live at a standard probably 10 to 15% higher without a raise if we would learn delayed gratification, save first and then buy. And we want to pass that on to the next generation. Helicopter parenting is not good parenting. It's not. We want our children to make their greatest mistakes while they're still in our home. We do. We can help them pick up the pieces. Sometimes we parent to save our own face and to protect our own reputation. And so we hover over our kids, and then when they go off, they either don't know how to handle life or they handle life in all the wrong ways. Helicopter parenting is doing no favors for the next generation. I love this. Everyone needs one of these shirts, don't we? I think if we could market that, we could make a lot. Our get along shirt. But I have it up there to make a point. We need a minimal amount of rules in our homes. The Old Testament has 613, but it was summarized by 10. 10. And if you think about the 10 commandments, they're really in four categories. Love God, love others, be moral, and be ethical. And if we have a minimal number of high-impact rules in the house, we will change the next generation in a way that is very positive and God-glorifying. We want to parent the same way in public as we do at home. I'm going to share with you a little observation. It's not about you. It's about the person in front of you. (laughs) But I have noticed that we have a number of kids that move through the hall in fourth gear. And I like that. You may not, but if they're not you bowling people over, I like that. I don't want the church to be stuffy. I want kids to love church. But I also notice that parents who don't care if their kids are in fourth gear, when I'm around, suddenly care. That's the people in front of you. (laughs) I got to tell you the truth. I kick a soccer ball in my office through the halls. If you're not around, I'm racing your kid. Just going to tell you. There's actually in my office a three dispenser thing of candy with quarters on top because I'm not above bribing kids. And I want them to love church and not to have stuffy rules. It doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that we want to parent the same at church as we do at home, and we want the kids to love church. Don't raise a brat. 
I know that's obvious, but maybe not so much. Not every teen has an iPhone 10. Your teen may tell you that, but it's not true. Your child is a treasure, but your child doesn't need all the treasures. No is a really good answer. It's a really good answer. Don't raise a brat. I picked this out because I just think this is a family that's having fun. I think we want to have fun. There may be mounds of laundry that resemble Mount Everest. You may just be a little bit frazzled by your kids. But if they love Jesus and they love you, you win. You win. And now my bonus. If you're married, nurture the marriage. That's good parenting. Nurture the marriage. Now, my suggestions, while sincere, are human suggestions. They're not inspired. So let's look at God's not suggestion, but what he tells us ought to be true in raising the next generation. In Proverbs 22, 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. When he grows old, he will not depart. I wish I had a lot more than the time allotted to me because the amount of information in one verse is just overwhelming. The first thing we want to remember is that this is a proverb, not a promise. Proverbs are rather unique in Scripture. The only thing like it is in the book of James that has some proverbial aspects When you come to literature in Scripture, you've got to ask what type of genre, what type of literature are you reading and interpret it that way. To turn a proverb into a promise is to abuse God's Word, and it's to abuse people. Proverbs are general maxims, they're general truths that are true at least 50% of the time, sometimes much more, 70 or 80. They are truths that if we will apply them, a preferred future is not guaranteed, but is more likely than if we do not apply them. That's how Proverbs work. I want to illustrate this by looking at Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. And then the second couplet, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, if you turn a proverb into a promise, you and I have problems, don't we? Because the first one says, when you come across a fool, have nothing to do with him. And the second one says, when you come across a fool, Answer him, or he will be even more foolish. How do you handle that? Well, this couplet is placed side by side so that we might rightly understand how to apply Proverbs, not only this one, but others. This is how we apply it. Let's suppose for a moment that I'm the fool. All right, that doesn't take much supposing. And let's suppose that Pastor Dan is the wise person. And Pastor Dan sees me do something very, very foolish. 
Now he has to think through his mind. He's got to think hard. Is Jeff a fool that can be won over? Or is Jeff a fool that is a know-it-all? And that's how you apply this. If Jeff is a fool that can be won over, lest I think I'm wise in my own eyes, Dan needs to confront me, reason with me, and show me the error of my ways. But if I'm a fool that is going to only argue and make my case and not listen, to argue with me will make Dan a fool. So he is to wipe the dust off his feet and go somewhere else. Proverbs are future predictors of better behavior, but they're not promises. And so in this case, the proverb is only true 50% of the time. 50% of the fools can be won over. 50% of the fools cannot. And if you can, you interact with the fool. If you can't, you move on. So with that understanding of how proverbs work, we need to see that train up a child in the way he should go. When he grows old, he will not depart is not a promise. But it offers better likely results if we train up that child in the way he should go. Later in life, there's a higher probability that that child will love the Lord and honor the Lord than if we do not. But to turn a proverb into a promise can be quite disheartening. What happens if you have a God-fearing home, a God-honoring set of parents, and they raise up a child and through personal rebellion, one walks away? If this is a promise, you must conclude that the parents are bad parents, and that is not always the case. Sometimes there are bad parenting principles being exhibited, but oftentimes we have really good godly parents who may have a wayward child, and some of those children come back to the Lord, and a few of them remain in the rebellion, even to the grave. Let me offer a few more thoughts on parenting. And I'm not pretending in any way to be an expert. I, I wish I lived out everything that I'm going to say. I don't always. As you probably know, though, I'm more now into grandparenting than I am into parenting. Ah, uh, yeah, I still parent those, those kids. But the grandbaby, she's the queen. So I think a lot about how to grandparent my granddaughter. And so I made a decision when she was born. Actually, a few of them. I'm going to share them with you. I decided that every time I'm with her, I will sing between six and eight, sometimes ten different Christian songs. You know the amazing thing about toddlers? They don't care if you sing in one note. And I sing in one note, and it's a good one. <laughs> and I sing her the same songs, and often she'll just put her head right on my chest while I sing the songs. She knows them. And I determined that I would also teach her scripture. Now, I have no idea if this experiment is going to work. I've never heard anyone else do it. 
But I determined I would teach my grandbaby memory verses from the day she was born. And so I've been teaching her five. At this point, she's heard them well over a hundred times. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. In Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, the Father, made him, the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. And I have a theory, totally unproven at this point, that when my grandbaby is able to speak in sentences, she will know those five verses by memory. I don't know if that's true, but that's the principle I am working on. So I sing to her, and I give her verses, and I catechize her. And so this is my book of catechism. It's a counting book, one to ten. And so one is one God. Two is Jesus has two natures. He is fully God and fully man. Three is the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Four is there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Five is the first five books of the Pentateuch, are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Six are the six days of creation, and I cite them to her. Uh, seven uh, are the I am statements out of John, and we cite those. Eight are the eight Beatitudes, and we cite those. Nine are the fruit of the Spirit out of Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And 10 are the Ten Commandments, and we cite those. So the interesting thing about this book is it contains information that most of us don't know by memory. So along with my baby, grandbaby, I'm learning some stuff. And my thought again is when she is old enough to talk, if I've read this to her enough times, she will have those basic principles down. That was all number one. They're not all that long. My second is we need to be praying for and with our children. The third is something my wife did, and you've heard me say this before, and it continues now with uh, some of our adult kids, but every time they would go to school, she would cite Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26 to them. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And now some of our kids have these in pretty prominent places, either on necklaces or in artwork in their homes or where they live. That was cited to them every day they would go to school. Another thing that we did that I think... Uh, was profitable, is we decided that devotions were a big deal in our family, and we're not nearly as spiritual as you. So we never aimed for seven nights. It wasn't realistic. We aimed for two or three a week. 
That's it. Two or three a week. I know you're way beyond us, but that's what we did. And it was always at dinner, and it was when the kids started to eat, and Betty Ann would start to eat. And uh, we went through a bunch of children Bibles, actually 13 of them. And then we started with the big Bible, and uh, all it would be was one paragraph. I'd read one paragraph. So if we were in Philippians, wouldn't even be a chapter. One paragraph, I might make a comment, and then I'd start eating. And while you have people eating, they'll listen. And if you don't say, we're going to be here for the next three days, they'll listen. And if you don't say you've got to do it every day, so then you end up in incredible guilt and you stop, but you make it manageable for your family, it's sustainable. And you can sustain this and sustain it. In fact, Betty Ann and I still do some of it today. Fifth, I've already mentioned it, but it takes a village to raise the next generation. Put God-fearing adults in the life of your kids, in the life of your grandkids, or be that adult in the life of someone else. It takes a village. And finally, of course, we monitor who they're with, what they watch, what they listen to. That matters. All of this is part of raising up a child. And the text says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he grows old, he will not depart. I think we evaluate too early. We evaluate during the challenging years, maybe teen years or maybe early 20s. That's not what the text says. It says when he grows old, he will not depart. I remember uh, a while back, I was, uh, I was in the car with our superintendent, who actually is here. So if you see uh, Superintendent John Payne, tell him I'm doing a good job. Uh, but I was in the car with him, and uh, there was a pastor in our district who was really grieving because he had a couple kids, teenagers, one that seemed to be walking with the Lord and, and one that was not. And I know you're going to be horrified. I'm totally horrified by this. But the one that wasn't walking with the Lord didn't always every Sunday want to get up and listen to dad preach. I know I am horrified by the thought myself. And he was distraught. In fact, I came to realize he was really on the edge of leaving ministry. And uh, he drove a couple hours to talk with me. And we talked for a while, and, and I shared Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he grows old, he will not depart. And I said, you know, your child's not really outwardly rebellious. He's just questioning. And you're evaluating too early. And he said, you know, I used that verse with one of my elders just the other day. He was, was thinking of getting off the elder board, but he just has a, a questioning team. But while I thought it applied to my elder, I, I didn't think it applied to me. I'm a pastor, and my kids need to be perfect. And we got to talking about that. I think we evaluate too early. And I think in this case, this pastor should continue down the path 
that he's on. Now, before you send me an email and say, well, Titus 1, 5 to 9 has strict guidelines for elders and pastors, and, and verse 6 makes this statement. Uh, it makes the statement that his children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I know that's in there. I know that's in there. But I don't think his son was an unbeliever. He just was questioning his, his faith. And, and I think this is talking about much more overt sin. And it's talking about a father who needs to set aside some of the ministry roles to be a greater presence in the home and also to perhaps protect the name of Christ. But that's not what was going on. We evaluate too early. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he grows old, he will not depart. But until those children leave the home, it says train. It's an interesting word. It's one you actually probably know without knowing you know it. It's hanak. It's a Hebrew word, hanak. You say, well, I probably never heard of that. No, but you've heard of hanaka, hanaka, right? Hanukkah, one of the famous Jewish festivals. This is the root from Hanukkah. You say, oh, I know about Hanukkah. That's the uh, Jewish Christian, uh, Christmas. Uh, no, not really. Um, unless it's a Messianic Jew, they do not embrace the birth of the Messiah. Uh, Hanukkah is in December. It does come often with presents. It's eight days long. And it is the celebration, actually more accurately, the dedication of the second temple. The temple built by Haggai, Zerubbabel, Ezra, that was destroyed in AD 70. That's what Hanukkah is. It is that dedication of that second temple. That's our word. So when it says to train up, it means to dedicate. Dedicate what? Dedicate the child, dedicate the home to what? The things of the Lord. What does it mean to train up a child? It means to dedicate yourself, your home, and that child to love the Lord. That's what the word means. It means to orient the house not around our sports, to orient the house, not around the arts, to orient the house, not around all A's on a report card. Those are great. There's nothing wrong with those, but that's not what we are called to do. Primarily, we are called to dedicate, to orient the house, the home, the child to the things of God. That's what it means to train. It means to dedicate the house. It's an agrarian word. Years ago, I worked at a world-class plant nursery, and there were some bonsai artists on staff. I wanted their job. It seemed to me like they did nothing. They would go out in the nursery, and they would look around for that perfect little plant that already looks windblown, and then they would take some wire, and they would shape it even more to make it windblown, and they would trim, and they would cut, and they were very, very precise. 
And that's what it means to train, to dedicate a child. It means to, to clip in certain spots. And, and it means to examine the way the child is already oriented. Train up that child in the way he should go. The idea is that cookie cutter parenting, grandparenting, surrogate parenting doesn't work. Kids all the time say, it's not fair. You don't treat me like you treat, and they name another sibling. And the wrong answer is, yeah, we treat you all the same. The right answer, the biblical answer is, we absolutely don't raise you the same. We shouldn't raise you the same. You're unique. And so we should examine how you are bent and raise you uniquely, which is different than your brother or your sister or your cousin. We raise everyone according to their bent. If, if you have a child that is bent towards athletics, I would say get them involved in fellowship of Christian athletes. If you have a child that is bent towards the arts, show them the great world of the arts filled with Christian values, music and, and sculpture and paintings. If you have a child that is intellectual and philosophical, introduce them to people like Collins who mapped the human genome, who is a Christ follower, or people who have philosophical bents. You have to raise each child differently. Now, my parents probably could have looked at my older two sisters, Debbie and Kathy, and they could have said, why aren't you more like your brother? It would have made sense if they had said that. But we're all different. And so they had to be disciplined over and over and over and over again. And I had to pray for them. We are all raised differently. In fact, that word train actually was used by midwives to create a taste for something. When a newborn was, was in the first hours of his or her life, an Arab midwife would take dates and grind it up and place the dates on the lip and the palate of, of the child, which would cause the child to suck in. That's how they taught the child to nurse. They created a taste for sustenance. That's what parents, grandparents, surrogate parents are to do. We want to create a taste for spiritual sustenance. We want to do whatever is necessary to cause these children to want to know Jesus and to learn about Jesus. And if you're in a husband-wife home, you do it as a team. Let me read from Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. My son, hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. That suggests no triangulation. One of the most dangerous things we can do as parents, grandparents, surrogate parents is to allow our kids to triangulate this. When mom speaks, dad has spoken. When dad speaks, mom has spoken. We are a team. 
And even if we disagree, we can do that later on, on our own. We are a team. And this is what the text is telling us. My son, hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Mom and dad, they speak with that united voice. For they will be graceful ornaments on your head and chains about your neck. A large part of the parental duty is to instruct, to teach on the things of the Lord. Yesterday is gone. When I, when I preached this last week in Weston, a father came up to me, shook my hand, and said, thanks, I did everything wrong. No. None of us have done everything wrong, and, and none of us have done everything right, and yesterday is gone. But today is here, and tomorrow may be here. What might we do in our homes to instruct and to train to create a taste for the things of God, to dedicate our home and our child to the Lord and to make that the priority of our home. It may be for some of us, we need to change the priority of our home. It may be that the priority of our home is not the things of God. This text is telling us otherwise. The priority of our home should not be arts or sports or school, or social events, or certain activities. The priority of our home should be to focus on training the next generation to love God. Proverbs 22.6. It's not a promise. It's a proverb, and it needs to be a priority in all of our lives. Let's pray. Father God, uh, boy, there's just so much we all could benefit from. There's so many incredible parents in this room and grandparents, and, and we're thankful for their model, and, and may we learn from them, and may we learn from your word and be the best parents, surrogate parents, grandparents that we can to create a taste, a longing, a thirst for the sustenance of your word and your personhood. Allow this to be reality in our lives and our homes. And Father, we acknowledge yesterday is gone and, and maybe, maybe there were a few things that we could have done and should have done and didn't. Forgive us, but empower us today and tomorrow. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.